Well, if you have a, a copy of the Bible with you here tonight, and I hope you have, then uh, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, where tonight I'd like to draw your attention to verse 22. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians about 68 AD and it's the, uh, 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 it's the book that nobody knows for certain who the author is but we think it probably is Paul um, but it doesn't say so at the beginning but if I say Paul then you know it's, uh, it's not a doctrine it's just a, an opinion but uh, we're looking tonight at verse 22 and we'll see what he said to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he says here, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Please keep the Bible open there. Uh, I wonder if you know who this gentleman is. This is Nelson Bell. And he is Billy Graham's, or was, Billy Graham's father-in-law. And he was Billy Graham's hero, apparently, uh, because he was such a, a godly man. And I can well believe that. Uh, John Pollock, who was a Christian author, he wrote a book about Nelson Bell called Foreign Devil in China, because that's what he was called, because he was a missionary in China. And, of course, the Chinese were... Uh, um, they were suspicious about this man who'd come among them, but when they saw that he'd come as a medical missionary, come to help them with their, their medical situations, they uh, realised he'd come in kindness and they listened to the message of the gospel that he brought to them. But uh, his life was one that touched Billy Graham and many other peoples because he was a man who walked so closely with the Lord. And in the book, John Pollock says this, he said, most important of all, was Nelson Bell's discipline of devotional life. Early every morning, he had a cup of coffee and went to his desk for about an hour of Bible study and prayer, praying especially for every patient listed for operation that day. This cycle of reading and prayer did not strike Nelson as formidable, but vital. It was his daily routine, the most important thing to him, and it led to his life being so impactful on others. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Drawing near to God, drawing near to God, having our personal quiet time, our personal time with the Lord at home, in the Bible and in prayer. The NIV says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Uh, the words to God are not actually in this verse, but they are in the verses uh, around it, and uh, it's, it's implied. But this translation says, let us draw near with a true heart. And uh, drawing near to God is the Christian's daily practice, or at least it should be. Stephen Alford said this, most of us know that the only life that counts for God is a life that starts each day in a quiet place, with a definite time, a specific plan, and an expectant spirit to wait on God to speak. Yet many of us don't have our quiet times. 
And I think that's sadly often the case. But I want to encourage you tonight to have your quiet time and draw near to God and meet with God in prayer and Bible study. You see, God doesn't want us just to work for him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And that means being alone with God. And this was important in the early days of the church, as it should be to us now. James chapter 5, verse 8, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in Psalm 73 and verse 28, uh, Asaph, who wrote that great psalm, said this, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He says it's good for me to draw near to God and it is good for you and me to do so as well. So I want us to look at this theme tonight under three headings from our text. Our approach, our attitude and our assurance. Let's see these three things as we just have a, a little study tonight in this passage. Our approach, and that's in verses 19 through to 21, the verses beforehand. And he says back in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. This is our approach. Field Marshal Slim was, uh, William Slim was the, uh, in charge of the British forces in the Burma campaign and in World War II. And on one occasion, um, he learned of a chaplain who'd been to visit one of his men and he was very concerned about this man and he had asked the senior chaplain could you appoint one of your men to go and visit him he's had some bad news from home and he's become very despondent and he needs somebody to go and see him well after uh, a, a few days uh, Field Marshal Slim called the head chaplain in to see him and he said uh, I want to complain about your chaplain who went to see him and he said, why, is there something wrong? And he said, yes, he said, there is. He said, he went to see that man, I asked you to go and see him too, and he was very nice, and he sat down, and he had a cup of tea with him, but he didn't tell him the one thing he needed to know. And the chaplain looked at him, wondering what on earth that was, and he said, well, what, what was it he needed to know? And Field Marshal Slim leant back in his chair and said, he needed to know about the man on the cross. The cross. You see, that's the one thing we all need to know, even in times of difficulty, uh, because the way we can come to God for help is by the cross. And that is the way in which we approach God and draw near. And that is what uh, the writer to the Hebrews is saying in these verses 19 to 21 in short. He says to the Christian writer, the Christians who were reading this, we know that because he calls them brethren, he says we have hope, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now the holiest is a picture here based on the temple in Jerusalem that they would have understood and the temple had an inner sanctuary where God dwelt and where the high priest alone could go once a year and he would go in trembling because you know he knew uh, if he had uh, uh, if, if, the, if the sacrifice he had offered wasn't accepted then he would be judged by God 
But in contrast, Paul says we can come boldly and we come by the blood of Jesus, a sacrifice God will accept. And we come boldly to God through the cross. And he says this is a new and living way for us to come in verse 20. We don't come through the priests in the temple now. We ourselves come to God in this new and living way ourselves. And the word new there is a beautiful word in the Greek that the, writer, the readers to the Hebrews uh, would have picked up on because it means a freshly sacrificed something freshly sacrificed like a freshly sacrificed animal this is a, a way which jesus has now just opened up to us through his death on the cross wasn't open to the people in the old testament in the same way as it is to us and he says we can come by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and just as the temple veil was torn in two and opened so that the priest could go in uh, after the death of Jesus. He's saying that's like Jesus' body given for us on the cross. And even more, because Jesus is our high priest in heaven, uh, we have a high priest over the house of God. Therefore, let us draw near to God. And this is our approach. Very simply, we come to God by the cross and I feel the need just to start off by saying this tonight because you know there'll be some people who are, are lovely church comers or goers and uh, there'll be lovely people but they've never come to God first of all by way of the cross they've never asked God to forgive their sins and cleanse them and save them from their sins they're lovely people but uh, they're not yet saved and they need to be saved Charles Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons he said there are multitudes of religious people, very religious people, but they are as dead as doornails. Multitudes of religious persons are like waxworks, well proportioned, and you might mistake them by candlelight for life. But in the light of God, you would soon discover there is a mighty difference. For the best that human skill can do is a poor imitation of real life. <laughs> he's saying that some people in church they're like Christian waxwork imitations they're not real Christians they come to church like everybody else but they don't know the Lord and so even though they're going through the motions they're not approaching God through the Lord Jesus Christ because they've never asked him to be their saviour and I want to ask you tonight have you done that have you asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your saviour have you asked God to forgive you your sins that you've committed and save you by his death on the cross. The novelist A.S. Bryant uh, once wrote these words. He said, I was moved by the Christmas story, but I rejected the atonement on the grounds that I did not need it. In other words, I don't need a saviour. It's a moving story, wonderful Christian stuff, but I don't really need it. That's how many people feel. I wonder, do you feel like that? Do you know your need of Christ? Do you know you need a saviour? That your sin is black before God and that you are condemned before him and you need one to wash you clean in his precious blood to save you. If not, then I must begin where that chaplain should have begun and tell you about the man on the cross. Jesus died in your place to be your substitute and to open that new and living way for you to come to God. And you can only come to God through him and through what he did on the cross. 
If you haven't yet come to Christ as your saviour, you need to do that now. And that's where you need to begin. You can't draw near to God otherwise. Sooner or later, your Christian fraudness will be exposed. Uh, a lovely story in Reader's Digest written in by a man by the name of Scott Lifford uh, from London. He says, I was standing in the foyer at work uh, chatting to the secretaries when a well-dressed businessman came striding in. Briefcase in one hand, he barked orders down his mobile phone to some unfortunate subordinate. Everyone jumped to attention to avoid incurring the similar wrath. However, the situation was instantly farcical when, while he was still speaking into it, the mobile phone rang. <laughs> he was bluffing and he got found out. One day every non-Christian will be found out. So come to Jesus if you haven't yet come to him. Are you saved? Are you really saved? If you have any doubts, come to Christ tonight. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is where our approach to God begins. Then you can draw near, as the Bible says. Secondly, I want you to see here our attitude, because he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a true heart or a sincere heart. And that is our attitude. Attitude is everything, isn't it? I heard about a, a man who was in the park one day and uh, he was walking his dog and another man uh, had a hat on, but the hat blew off in the wind and the dog ran after the hat and bit it. And uh, the man complained to the fellow with the dog and uh, the fellow with the dog said, look mate, there's nothing I can do about it and uh, just be on your way. And uh, the man with the hat said, hmm, I don't like your attitude. And the man said, it's not my attitude, it's yours. <laughs> attitude is everything, isn't it? And attitude is important even spiritually as we come to God. How do we come to God when we come for our quiet times? How do we approach God? We should come with a true or sincere heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, a sincere heart means we come spiritually. We come spiritually. We don't come with liturgy. We don't come liturgically. Uh, I say that because I've met people who, when they come to do their prayers, they get out a book of prayers. I remember being asked to go and visit a lady. She asked to come, me to come and see her. Uh, uh, she was a, a lady from Latvia. And uh, this was uh, in one of our previous churches. And we had this contact with this lady. She asked to speak to me. She was very troubled. She'd seen a documentary on television about what happens when you die. And, and this had awoken her just briefly. And I wanted to speak to her. She wanted to speak to me. So I was pleased to go and see her. But when I got there, my heart sank because she said, how can I not be a Christian? She said, and she had a pile of books on the table. She says, I say my prayers from these books every single day. And these were all books from like, I suppose, Russian Orthodox Christianity. And uh, there was a prayer for, to this saint and a prayer to that one and a prayer for this and a prayer for that. And she had a different prayer for every day. She went through all the books. And she was, you know, routinely doing this every day. But that's not seeking God with a sincere heart. 
C.S. Lewis said a well-trained parrot can pray. And uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coming spiritually. In fact, Charles Finney in his lectures on revival said this about prayer books. He said, we see from this subject the absurdity of using set forms of prayer or prayer books. The very idea of using a form rejects, of course, the leadings of the spirit. Nothing is more calculated to destroy the spirit of prayer and entirely to darken and confuse the mind as to what, it can, what constitutes prayer than to use quote-unquote forms. Forms of prayer are not only absurd in themselves, but they are the very device of the devil to destroy the spirit and break the power of prayer. It is of no use to say the form is a good one. Prayer does not consist in words, and it matters not what the words are if the heart is not led by the Spirit of God. And I agree with that. I agree totally. It doesn't matter if they're very good, well-written little prayers. They have to be from the Spirit. And this is what Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, said uh, is true, sincere prayer. And God, in uh, John 4 verse 24, the Lord Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3 put it like this. He said, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. And that's how we come to God. We come in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't come uh, with liturgy. We come spiritually praying to God as the Holy Spirit gives us power inside. We come humbly, uh, we come humbly, and the contrast here in Scripture is the contrast of the Pharisees and how the Pharisees used to pray. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord Jesus said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. We come humbly, not like the Pharisees, uh, wanting uh, praise for our prayers. That's not a true heart. That's, that's coming with false motives, uh, desiring to be uh, praised by men rather than received by God. To come with a true heart means to come willingly, not reluctantly. You know, some people do have a, a devoted prayer life, but their prayer life is based on a reluctant fear, if I can put it like that. You know, there's an attitude that, you know, I'd better say my prayers because if I don't, something bad may happen to me. Have you ever met people like that and that attitude? That's not the way to come to God. We come with a willing heart. The psalmist said this in Psalm 42 verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And that was his desire. He had an inner yearning to be with God, to draw near to him. That's the attitude of a true heart, a sincere heart. And a true heart is a childlike heart. It comes in simplicity of faith 
to God like to a father. This is why the Lord Jesus taught us, isn't it, in the Lord's Prayer to begin by saying, Our Father in heaven. And he said, when you go to pray to your Father who knows the things you need. And God is our Father and we come to him as children to the Father. And the Spirit, when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us, he cries out what? Abba Father. Abba Father. You know, I read the testimony of a Jehovah's Witness when he was converted and he was used to praying to Jehovah God, Jehovah God, Jehovah God. When he became a Christian, put his trust in Jesus without even thinking about it, the first thing he did was say, Father. And it struck him. And he remembered that verse in the book of Galatians and in Romans chapter 8 that says the Spirit cries out, Abba Father. And it was a testimony to him that the Bible is true and he truly had been saved. So that's how we come. We come to a Father who loves us. So I hope and pray this week, as you come to God, as you have your quiet time, you draw near to God at home. You come by the cross. You come the right way. You come having trusted in Jesus as your Saviour. That's your approach. But you come with a, the right attitude too, with that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that childlike faith, that willingness that humble heart, and above all that spirituality that means you're coming by God and not by your flesh. And then thirdly, we see here, we're told to draw near to God, and this is our assurance in verse 22. He says we're to come having uh, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, in full assurance of faith. And uh, our assurance is an important thing in coming to God. You know, Francis Ridley Havergal was one of the great hymn writers of the past. I've got a book at home, which is a, a book of her written works of poetry, uh, as well as her hymns. And it's just beautiful. It is elevating. It's not just poetry for poetry's sake. It's something that really does touch the heart. But you know, when she was a young lady, she heard a sermon on the judgment of God and that sermon haunted her. And every time she came to the Lord's table, she was deeply troubled and worried about her salvation. And it was a long time before she gained assurance and she was able to rest in the fact that she was trusting in Christ and that she knew Christ as her saviour and Lord. She had a Christian friend by the name of Miss Caroline Cook who shared uh, the word with her and helped her tremendously. And she uh, uh, kept praying that God would guide her and a newly converted friend helped her as well. And in time, she gained that full assurance of faith. Well, that's what how we need to come to God too. We need to come with a full assurance of faith, not with partial assurance. You know, some people are yo-yo Christians, aren't they? Do you know what I mean by that? They're up and down. They're up, I'm going to heaven one day. They're down, I'm going to hell the next. Up, down, up, down. And every day can be different. And that's not the way to live the Christian life. If we want to come near to God, the Bible says we can come with a full assurance of faith. This is how uh, uh, the writer had spoken earlier on in chapter 6 verse 11 of this book and he said and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end and that full assurance 
is what God wants for each one of his children. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, said this, if we are uncertain about our forgiveness, we are definitely limiting God, and we have no right to be like that. God is our Father, and a father never wants his children to be unhappy, to be uncertain about the relationship. Such a thing is inconceivable. And I think that's exactly right. God doesn't want you to be unhappy and uncertain about your relationship with him. He wants you to have full assurance of faith. Now, how can we have full assurance of faith? Well, he explains it in the words that follow. He says we have full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience or a guilty conscience, I think it says in the NIV, and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's two things there, the sprinkling and the washing. Let's deal with the first one. What does it mean to have our hearts sprinkled with, uh, from an evil conscience? Well, the sprinkling here is a reference to the covenant of Moses and the application of the blood of the sacrifice. If you go back to chapter 9 and, uh, of the book of Hebrews, and I think it's in verse 19. It, it reminds us of what happened in Exodus 24 when Moses came down the mountain after making a covenant with God for the people of Israel. They sacrificed an animal at the bottom and it says in verse 19 of chapter 9, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And what this was doing was, this was saying that this blood is, is showing that you are in the covenant the sacrifice has been paid and the blood has, has made, has been the grounds of the covenant between us and God. So they took the blood and they, he sprinkled the book. You imagine sprinkling a Bible with blood. But that's in effect what he did. He had the covenant written out on a scroll and he sprinkled it with blood. So that, it was a God's side of it is made through the blood. And then he took the blood and he sprinkled the people. Now, can you imagine being in church when the pastor pulled out a bowl of blood? You'd all coil and, and run to the back. But I tell you what, those people who had blood on their garments, I bet you they never washed them again. They would have kept those, and I can imagine them bringing them out and showing their grandchildren. This was the blood of the covenant that Moses made between God and us. And it was an assurance to them. They were in a covenant relationship with God on the basis of the sacrifice. Well, this is what he's saying for us about the cross. Our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. The blood has been applied to our sin and the guilt has been removed by the blood of the Lamb. And we have no right to hold back from God the worship that he deserves and the relationship he wants with us and to deny ourselves that because of our guilty consciences. 
and our evil consciences, as he calls them there, because it is pretty evil when you've got a bad conscience, isn't it? We've got no right because the blood has been sprinkled and applied to us. I'm going to show you one of my go-to verses, which is one of the, the most comforting verses I know. It's chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To me, that's the one of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible. The blood of Christ cleanses us not only from our sins, but he cleanses our conscience too. So we are able to have a relationship with God with full assurance of faith. And if you're a Christian here today, if you know you've asked the Lord to be your saviour and you've trusted in his death on the cross, embrace that fact that you have been sprinkled with the blood. You're in the covenant. You have a covenant relationship with God. God isn't in the business of breaking his covenants. You are his child and you are secure and your sins have been washed away. You say, but John, what about the bodies bit? The bodies washed with pure water. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? And uh, it's one that's caused the commentators to come up with lots and lots of different theories. Is he talking about baptism? I don't think he is talking about baptism because if that's the case, you couldn't have, uh, you couldn't draw near to God until you were baptized. And actually, somebody who's been saved can come to God straight away. And the thief on the cross, who was never baptized, he could still draw near to God on the cross, and uh, uh, therefore it can't be baptism. Although baptism obviously is uh, a command of the Lord Jesus, and it is important, but. It's not far from that because it's associating something with something that the Jews would have seen like baptism, which was when the Jewish priest took what they called a mikvah, a bath. Now, I'm afraid I forgot to add this on and you can beat me up later over a cup of tea and cake. But uh, in Jerusalem, there has been a really exciting discovery in the last few years in that they have found what they now to believe to be the Pool of Siloam, which is different to what they had previously thought was the Pool of Siloam. And they have found the archaeological remains of two huge swimming pool-sized pools at the bottom of the hill of Jerusalem. And these two pools were called mikvahs and it's where the people would go for their washing before they went up to the temple. They would come to Jerusalem, they would be washed ceremonially in clean water before going up. And they've also started to uncover steps going all the way up the hill up to Jerusalem. And they started uncovering it and when it's finished you're going to be able to see a side, a side of a hill that is covered in steep steps. You remember when Paul uh, was spoke to the Roman soldier in Acts, in Acts 21, I think it is, and he spoke to the people on the steps and he gave his testimony. That's where it was. And it's ever so exciting. And I forgot to put it on there. I'm so sorry. But they would have done that in the olden days. Coming to Jerusalem, we, we go to draw near to God. We have a, a mikvah. We wash our bodies in water. Then we go up to the temple. Well, he's saying that we have something like that too, but it's something that cleanses us and gives us full assurance of faith. 
Therefore it cannot be water on the skin, it's something in the heart. But it's like that washing with pure water. What is it? Well, I believe the answer is to take scripture and let scripture interpret scripture. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet Ezekiel talked about the fact that one day he was going to give God, God was going to give his people a new heart. They were going to be born again. In Ezekiel 36 verse 25, he said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, being born again. So we put these things together and we say, I've been, I'm in the covenant by the blood of Jesus and I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Like, like when we used to have our bodies washed, God's cleansed us and made our hearts new. Therefore, I am right with God and I can draw near to him. That is our assurance as we are to come near to God. I heard of a little girl who broke her mother's favourite vase. It was an accident and she said to her sorry, her mother sorry, and uh, she came to her mother and confessed that she had broken her vase. Her mum was obviously upset, but you know, these things happen. Children will be children. It wasn't naughtiness, it was an accident, and uh, the vase was swept away. The next day, the little girl went to the dustbin and picked up the bits of the broken pieces of the, of the vase and brought them back to her mother and said, Mum, I'm so sorry. I know this was your favourite vase. I'm so sorry. Mum said, look, I forgave you. It's okay. Go and put it back in the bin. It's over. The next day, the little girl did the same thing and she kept going back to the dustbin and bringing back the bits of the broken vase. I'm so sorry I did it, Mummy. I'm so sorry. And her mother said, now look, this has got to stop. I told you I have forgiven you. It's over. It's done. You don't need to keep coming back saying sorry for the thing that has been washed away. Am I getting through to some of you? The blood of Jesus has cleansed you from 25% of your sins. Nay, blasphemy. The blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all your sin. Therefore, you can come with full assurance of faith and draw near to God. And I pray that each one of you will. God cannot make his word any truer. Think about that. God can't make his word any truer. He says he's forgiven you. The choice is on your side to believe it and to embrace it in faith. So this week, let us be people who draw near to God. The times demand it, friends. We need a close walk with God. And our heavenly journey will be all the better and more wonderful if we're walking with our Saviour. So let us draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Praise the Lord.